Welcome to OsteoTalk, an Osteopathy Australia podcast dedicated to delivering clinically relevant education for osteopaths to learn, connect and collaborate by drawing on a wealth of knowledge seen in practice as well as experts in other disciplines. Join us as we explore real clinical issues through interviews and discussion with top practitioners in Australia and internationally. For more learning and development resources, visit our website at www.osteopathy.org.au. Today, we have the pleasure of hearing from Dr. Oliver Thompson, the creator and host of the Words Matter podcast. Oliver practices as an osteopath in London, where he works in a multidisciplinary clinic. In addition to his clinical role, he also works as an associate professor at the University College of Osteopathy, where his main research interests are using qualitative methodologies to understand the clinical reasoning, beliefs and behaviours of health professionals and osteopaths, and he has published extensively in these areas. Oliver is also an associate editor for the International Journal of Osteopathic Medicine. He's also the host of the Words Matter podcast, where he has critical discussions with leading academic clinicians across the musculoskeletal spectrum on topics related to person-centered care, clinical communication, evidence-based practice, and the biopsychosocial model. Oliver also offers one-to-one clinical mentoring to osteopaths across the globe and online learning through his Words Matter platform. I hope you find this discussion with Oliver as thought-provoking and insightful as I did. Welcome, Oliver, to the OsteoTalk podcast, and thank you for joining us all the way from London. To begin with, can you please tell us about the Words Matter podcast? Sure. So I think... um... The podcast, the Words Matter podcast kind of came about, I, I started it um, during the pandemic, the beginning, like everyone was kind of bored and taking up new hobbies. Some people took up knitting or running. I took up podcasting and I suppose it came from, so my background as a researcher is in qualitative research. I was like really in the kind of research methods that I use are to talk to people about their experiences, their reasoning. And in, in the case of my PhD, like I was interested in why osteopaths do what they do and why they think how they think. So I was interested in talking to people and trying to make sense of what people said. And it just turns out that clinically, um, the kind of things we, we say to patients, frame to patients, um, seems to impact how they interpret their problem and their subsequent recovery. So that was kind of the basis of the podcast. Like it started out by focusing on kind of language and beliefs around MSK pain but subsequently it's kind of grown into this monster um, not in terms of listenership but I suppose in terms of like scope it touches on theory and philosophy and evidence-based practice and all the kind of I think interesting but difficult questions which surround osteopathy or clinical practice so that's why. There are certainly some challenging concepts in there um, it's um, it's really given me a lot to think about and I, I really appreciate that can you give us a brief explanation of the the biomedical model um, and the limitations in your opinion sure so i mean the biomedical model is is what can i say so i mean the biomedical model assumes okay it was the dominant model of healthcare some would say that it still is you know some would argue that it still underpins much of healthcare practice but i suppose for me the easiest way to think about the biomedical model is that it's it assumes that human suffering, so patients that we see and the kind of 
unpleasant experiences that they're going through, that can be explained through merely biological phenomena or by, by medical ideas. And it also assumes a biomedical model has some other assumptions built into it, such as like it may, it, the role of us as osteopaths, as clinicians, is that we can kind of identify in an objective sense these biomedical physical problems, dysfunctions or restrictions or whatever it might be that kind of lie hidden within the body. And we can kind of, as a, our role is to kind of reach in, kind of fiddle with them, intervene somehow. And then there's a kind of natural resolution of symptoms or pain or whatever. So the, the biomedical model has some assumptions around, kind of, I'm going to use a word, epistemic, or, or assumptions around knowledge around disease and suffering, like it's objective, it's in there, it can be accessed by someone, by a clinician. And that affects the relationship that we have. If we adopt a biomedical model, we tend to have a kind of more one-sided relationship that the clinician or the osteopath has all the knowledge. Like we know where the problems lie, but like a mechanic looking at the cars, oh yeah, that's your problem there. It's the, what do cars have? They've got engines, I don't know, alternators, they still exist. Um, Whatever. Yes. Exhausts, that's, we know. Head gasket. Yep. Head gasket, that's it. Yeah. It's there, that's your problem. And the mechanic has the skill, he or she possesses the knowledge of kind of where this thing is and how to kind of fix it. So it really sets the, the sort of relationship that we have, we have with patients. So that's a kind of, and, and there's a you know, much broader, deeper kind of philosophical understanding to the biomedical model, but that's a kind of roughly how I come to understand it. Do you feel like there is still a place for it in modern practice? It's interesting. I, I was running some CPD at the institution that I work for and the same, same question was asked. Or no, no, rather, I said, we should just get rid of the biomedical model. Like we should just throw it off the kind of fires of Mordor, like get rid of it. It really <laughs> offers us nothing. And then some of the people in, in, the, on, in the session were like, well, no, no. What about I just had surgery and surgery is biomedical. And I would, if I would have died, if I hadn't had surgery, therefore we should keep the biomedical model. So I suppose at this point, it's probably good to make a distinction between the biomedical model as a kind of philosophical position and biological factors. And so, of course, human kind of medical ailments will have components which are biological, social, emotional, psychological, some might say spiritual. Um, but that can be, you can sort of approach those as, as a kind of whole in a person-centered way, but biomedicalism as, as it is as a, as a philosophical stance and like assuming that, that the therapist, the clinician is all knowing, all seeing, all powerful and that disease and suffering can be explained in purely biomedical ways, that should be gotten rid of. And we, should, we, don't, we don't need that because the bio bit is still incorporated within some of the more contemporary frameworks like the biopsychosocial model. So no, so, so just to make the distinction that we biological, like, knees and toes and ankles still exist there's like anatomical phenomena and things but we can approach those in a in a in a different way in a, in a concise psychosocial or yep. person-centered way yep and look i feel like it, it sort of depends on the presentation as well like if you if you have a traumatic or an acute presentation i feel like the biomedical model would be more relevant as opposed to your patient that's had the five years of lower back pain for instance um, you know, with an acute injury, you're, you're more likely to have that, that tissue damage, yeah. um, 
that you can identify and you still need to take in uh, take into account that patient-centered approach um so that's sort of how i was trying to wrap my head around it it's it's a good example and i think thinking about that that acute injury when someone gets hit by a car (laughs) and i mean that's that's an extreme yeah i I was thinking facets brain but yeah um, okay or a sprained ankle someone comes (laughs) into your clinic and you and you made a good point there. You said, well, I think the biomedical model has something to say about that patient. We can use that model to help that patient. And, and I suppose my argument says, well, no, actually, it doesn't help us at all because it still puts you. Remember, the biomedical model is more than just the assumption around kind of tissue damage or, or objective changes to, to anatomy or, or still the, the structure. That it's it, it it sets you on a path of a, a certain relationship with the patient. And things like mind-body kind of dualism and kind of paternalism, which are even with an acute facet strain or ankle sprain, you don't really want to be part of. So, but you can still be interested in the facet joint Mm. or the ankle joint, the kind of biology, the biomedical side to it within the context of the biosocial model. So that's why built into the BPS model are biological factors, our ankles, knees, toes, facet joints, nerves, and you've, and you, but you've got a slightly different relationship and kind of platform to work from. So, no, I, I still think it's not relevant. Yeah. But you're, you're quite yeah. right that biomedical yeah. factors yeah. are relevant because someone's been yeah. hit by a car. Or... And I think as well it depends on whether you're planning to perform manual therapy as well. Um, yeah. Okay. That's good. Can you talk about – so what are some of the alternate models that you think we can apply to osteopathy? Goodness. So um, – I suppose the most well-known is the biosocial model, and that's pretty well-known now, I think, amongst healthcare, MSK, osteopathy. And I say it's kind of, it's, people say it's a, I mean, I just refer to it as a contemporary model. It's still like 40 years old. Um, and it's been built upon, and, and that has a slightly different position. As I said, it, it incorporates other facets of the patient or the person's kind of illness, you know, social factors, psychological factors, and biomedical factors. That's the key thing. So it's not people often presume that it gets rid of ankles, toes, cells, mitochondria, all that stuff, all the biological stuff. It's, it, it's part of that, but it sees biological factors as, as just one group of things which might be responsible for the person getting sick or recovering from illness. Um, so that's, and yeah, there's been quite a bit of research into that area. It's relevant to osteopathy. We know it's a challenge for clinicians, osteopaths, physios, others to incorporate that model. It's kind of a tricky, slippery thing because it begins to separate out biopsychosocial. And so clinicians find that quite challenging because they tend, uh, you know, as we've kind of spoken about, like the biomedical model is so built into who we are and like it's, it's so built into our training, even as kind of kids, we grow up with a biomedical model. We have a kind of very biomedical view of things. And so when, when we're presented with kind of difficult or complex cases, we and even taking a biopsychosocial approach, we tend to still focus on the biomechanical stuff, the biological stuff. So we might think, oh, yeah, the person's a bit stressed, but let's really focus on the ankle. And so it can be really challenging to apply, and it, it isn't easy um, and so, so that, that's the kind of most common model. There are other ones which have, which have kind of come from that. Yep. 
Um, and there's there's lots of podcasts on yours all about those. I had to um, there's, some of them are a little bit more difficult to pronounce, um, but they were they were incredibly yeah. interesting, uh, very thought provoking. Um, yeah, and I think I mean I think just at that point is to say that like all all professions are are grappling with the same kind of problem. So it's not you know I'm particularly outspoken about osteopathy and how I think it can progress and develop. But there are people like me who are making similar arguments with physiotherapy or medicine. And so it's not that other professions have really got it kind of sussed out and like we're just slow and stupid. Um, others do have, it's, it's a difficult thing, as we said, like it's difficult to incorporate this stuff into clinical practice, into education. Um, so that's why some of the podcasts you talk about are, I suppose, a bit more in depth and can be challenging to, to as a to, I mean there are there are aimed at clinicians to get but it's hard to if you overly simplify the stuff you can lose some of the meaning and you become yeah. to you, you lose some of the some of the important bits but yeah I agree yeah. you do need a dictionary with thesaurus next to you sometimes. Yeah I did a lot of Google um Google <laughs> word searches. Uh, <laughs> in in Australia I think we are still like in, in our training and in our practice we are very much focused on technical skills and and manual therapy. What do you think are the other crucial skills we need to optimize our patient care? That's a good point. And so, I mean, you're right. And I don't think it's just Australia. Like I've been an osteopath in the UK for 15 years and I've worked, you know, in many institutions around Europe and UK. So like the, the manual therapy, the technical skills, the manual assessment of the body seems to be highly valued by osteopaths and to some extent by patients too, like patients, by and large, when they come and see an osteopath, they expect to be prodded and poked in a very discreet, skillful, professional way. And I think that some of the skills which we perhaps haven't we've haven't focused on as much because that's been our our kind of bag, if you like, is to, is to do those technical skills, are some of the relational skills or the communication skills, which I think we've been doing, but just intuitively like we've just been kind of stumbling our way through it and I haven't really emphasized those more contextual or relational skills and if you just look at if you remember your training and my training and even current training if you look at the hours spent in you know, learning about manual therapy skills versus you know, relational skills or communication skills or listening skills the communication the listening bit you tend just to pick up in clinic like when you're when you're on your kind of clinical educational component you just go out and do it and you'll just eventually you'll just become good listeners um so so i think the, the listening skills relational skills how to really develop a relationship with the patient and be aware of the nature of that relationship trying to manage some of those power imbalances which invariably occur i think those skills we don't focus on enough or make explicit enough and they're the things which seem to suggest predict outcome <clears throat> predict outcome for patients. Okay. I, I certainly find that the most challenging thing is um, time management, but also patient expectations. So I feel like the focus of each appointment is on doing examination and making sure you cover all your bases so you can take your medical legal notes. So you've done all your ortho or neuro testing, whatnot, um, and then as much hands-on as possible. Mm. um and everything else you know explanations education can just sort of 
it's it's and and also listening to their story and whatnot you sort of you know they're they're giving you their history and you're kind of like yep come on we need to mm-hmm. we need to move on mm-hmm. and and it's also the patient expectations like are they they expect uh, I would say 99% of the people that I see if I didn't treat them hands-on they wouldn't come back how how do we go about educating them or yeah, it's really hard. And, you know, we both made claims there. You said 99. You were very specific with your claim. 99.9% yep. want manual therapy. I said most patients expect manual therapy. And the truth is, we're probably not far off. But I think the first thing is to ask patients in a session, yep. what do you what are you expecting from your appointment today, your, your session today? And I think if we all ask that question, we would be surprised. And... I think some patients would say, I, I would like some manual therapy or I'm expecting some manual therapy. There's a slight difference between expecting manual therapy and wanting manual therapy. If a patient, so you could say, what would you like from today rather than even expecting? And I think with that question, we'd be surprised at the answer and we'd probably get some responses such as, oh, actually, I just want a slightly better idea about what's going on with my back or my knee and maybe anything that you think would be helpful for me to do about it. Now, if that's the answer we get back, then us pursuing manual therapy for half an hour is certainly not meeting their expectations. So, and we compromise the relationship, they're lying there, having this thing done to them, which they didn't really want or weren't really expecting, but yet we're doing it anyway, because that's what we do, because we're manual therapists and technical skills are part of our identity. So I think firstly, and if patients say, well, I want manual therapy, can I have it please? Then we can do it within a certain framework. So we really owe it to our patients to ask them what they're expecting from us and trying to meet their expectations. There's obviously a kind of ethical tightrope where if patients want treatment, which we might think is ineffective, we need to, we have a duty of care not to provide that. So a patient says, I want to have my neck manipulated every other day for the next six months. If we then say, oh, the patient expects that, I better do that. Then obviously we have a, a duty of care to inform them, to work with them, to try and understand why they want that. So interesting, when you ask a patient, what are you expecting from today? What would you like from today? If they give you a kind of shopping list of manual therapy, it's interesting or rather it's important or helpful to to know the beliefs behind that. So why is it you want that? What what do you think is going on? And you see, you know, opening up those questions, big open questions will give you an insight into how they're conceptualizing their problem, you know, how they're thinking about their pain, which then might lead you into other forms of treatment or intervention. Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. Just keep showing curiosity. Um, I feel like if, if we were, if we do move away from the biomedical model, um, it, it can undermine the system of diagnosis that we're trained in. Um, yeah. And we're always taught without, we're always told without a working diagnosis, but without a diagnosis, without tissue findings, we can't justify doing any sort of manual therapy. So I don't know, where, where does that leave us practitioners that still want to do manual therapy? So I, I think the issue around diagnosis is interesting. And I don't know what the kind of regs are in Australia. I'm pretty sure in the UK, the, the the standards of practice set by GIOSC don't they don't state 
you have to have a tissue diagnosis. They need, they say you've got to have a working diagnosis or, or a diagnosis. Yeah. I think they keep it pretty open. Yeah. So then it's like, okay, so now I've just got to, then we can ask a question, well, what's a diagnosis? Like what, what's a, what diagnosis do I need to provide, which both meets the kind of medical legal requirement for me to have some idea about what's going on, but at the same time, isn't biomedical. And at the same time, I can, is honest. Like it's a true reflection to the best of my knowledge and the best of the evidence captures what's going on in this person's body, knee, back, ankle. And so I think, so I think diagnosis, firstly asking yourself, well, do I need, given the, I mean, there's lots of things tied to this, but given the lack of specificity of both manual assessment. So when we poke around someone's back and I'm using the word poke, like facetiously, palpate or assess or whatever. I mean, it looks like poking to, to most people. Yeah. We're feeling around someone's back and we're trying to get a sense of tissue texture changes and somatic dysfunction and positional changes and restriction, just recognizing that that's inherently unreliable and we're probably not feeling what we what our brain thinks we're, we're feeling. And thirdly, it doesn't seem to matter too much at all whether there's perceived stiffness in that part of the body uh, or and whether we do some manual therapy to that particular kind of location so there's there's lots of uncertainty around the the reliability of palpation but also the validity of the manual therapy to it so i guess what i'm trying to say is trying to record specific tissue diagnosis is a bit of a fib it's a bit of a white lie we're doing it because we think we should do it and we think that it means something and the, so it doesn't really mean anything in that sense moreover so I think that's, and from a tissue, from a medical legal point of view, kind of back pain or non-split back pain or, you know, kind of sprained ankle, these are, these are as accurate as we can be. We can't be much accurate, much more accurate. So logging tissue-specific findings, we just, the evidence doesn't allow us to give that level of detail. And, I, and medical legally, we don't need to give that level of detail mm. to you. And also therapeutically, whether it's, this tissue, that tissue doesn't seem to make any difference to outcomes. I suppose yeah. the third point to that, the words bit, is that then kind of, kind of relaying all of that info to the patient, the anatomical structures and the tissues and the kind of biomechanical fairy tale about what's going on, that then also begins for them to, to build a particular way of understanding their body and their problem, which we know seems to be quite unhelpful in terms of their experience, their decision-making around care and also their behaviors. So they, and they end up being a little bit worse. Yeah. Broadly speaking. I feel like we, we feel like we have to justify Well, so if we want to perform a particular technique, we we need to have some sort of diagnosis. Um, And, you know, we feel like we have to provide validation to the patient in the, oh, you know, you're you're tidying your QL muscle and you've got a bit of a rotation through this lower lumbar joint and it's feeling a little bit stiff this way. So I'm going to perform this manipulation. And so they walk out of there thinking, oh God, I'm tired, I'm stiff, I'm twisted, um, which is all very negative. But also I just, I don't know whether if we just had a diagnosis of patient perceiving pain in lower back and then perform manual techniques, whether that is still whether that would pass the, the, the legal test. It would have to, because I mean, the, 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 the legal, I mean, the, the bit about you, the bit about your bit rotated here and your QL, 
like we that's not true i mean you there's the, the evidence says that we can't be that accurate so it would be bizarre for kind of the medical legal requirements to to enforce you to achieve a level of accuracy which you just is impossible to achieve yeah but we could certainly do and i think again it comes back to yeah reframing the diagnosis and reframing what we mean by diagnosis it doesn't preclude the use of manual therapy. So you gave an example about, you know, explain to a patient that they're a bit twisted in their QL, therefore I'm going to do an HPT in the back. But I suppose a way of what you could also say to a patient is something like, Mrs. Smith, um, it was a bit sore in your back. I could see when you were moving and when we did some movements and it was a bit sore when you, you twisted and you felt a bit unsure or it felt a bit, you said it, you, you said it felt a bit stiff when you twisted this technique will actually maybe help you feel a bit better in those movements or a bit more confident or something like that. I mean, that's, I haven't mentioned ligaments or muscles or joints. Yeah. I've kept it purposely vague, but I try to be clear about my kind of therapeutic intention. This will make you feel more comfortable or it's a bit sensitive around this area. We know that these sorts of techniques can help reduce the sensitivity for a short period of time. Would you like to go ahead with it? And that's usually enough. Patients don't want like an anatomical mm. like explanation Obviously, some might, but often it's more about us flexing our kind of biomedical muscles and saying, look what we know. I know these names of ligaments and muscles. You don't because you're just a patient. And here's this really complicated explanation about something I'm going to do, which more so legitimizes us, makes us feel cool and knowledgeable. Yeah. But actually the person's just like, well, what? Like, I, don't, I don't care. And not just they don't care, but you us giving them those very intricate biomedical explanations are both untrue and unhelpful. So they're both not really true because we're kind of making it up or pretending that we can be that accurate. But also you ask yourself, is this helpful for the patient? Is me giving them a kind of menu of anatomical structures, is that helpful for them in the broader sense to, to kind of live with this problem or move forward? And I would argue that no, some would say, well, actually no, once you tell them what's wrong, in a very detailed way that gives them that makes them understand what's going on problem is that understanding things in very structural mechanistic ways in a very biomedical way you're kind of perpetuating these biomedical beliefs these are some of the strongest predictors as i said before in delayed recovery or no recovery or slow recovery from things like back pain so we want to be really careful you know is is this explanation going to shape the person's experience of their problem in a way which we know is unhelpful that's the question we are we should ask that every time we before we open yeah. our mouths yeah and i think i can go on i can say well yep. and i think at the same time exploring what kind of detail the person wants so there isn't a script you know, every person gets a slightly different explanation quite rightly but we'll you know it comes back to asking those open questions what are you expecting from me today what do you think is going on with your ankle or back or knee and being open to like nice big open questions and then working with what you get back. Are you, are you still in practice at the moment or purely um, academia? No, no, I work, yeah, I work Tuesdays and Fridays in my clinical days. So I work in a okay. clinic in London Yep. with a bunch of other clinicians, podiatrists, physios, osteos, massage, yep. therapists. So I'm kind of still rooted in practice. I'm still confused. I still yep. don't know what I'm doing. You know, I don't, I still get these things wrong. I still 
have conversations with patients and think, God, that was terrible. Like, that, oh, was just, that went badly. Yeah, all the time. I have so many of those. I just, I look back to some of the things I've said and I just want to bang my head against a wall. It's hideous. Um, but we learn. So that's the main yeah. thing. And so, it should be difficult. Okay. So it's just that it should be, like, yeah. we should, you and I have been in practice for 15 years. It should still be really difficult. We should still be confused yeah. because it is confusing. And I think the minute we start to think, well, this was easy, or this is just a simple acute back pain, we're not thinking quite, enough. Right. We're not thinking enough here. Yep. So how do you, do you do any manual therapy now yourself? I, I do. I do less and less, actually. Like I, I yep. still do some. Um, and, you know, we've got patients, I've got kind of spectrum of patients, but some patients want more, some aren't fussed at all. I think with new patients now, I do far, far less. Yep. And probably 50%, maybe more, 60% of my patients now are, I asked the question, what are you looking for from me today? And it's manual therapy and it's probably self-selecting. They probably know that I'm a bit of a conservative hands-off or hands manual conservative in terms of manual therapy. I don't do much of it. Yep. Um, hands-off <laughs> kind of clinician. So they kind of, they're drawn to me, I suppose. So yeah. I get, get some self-selection that way. Um, but you know, the truth is that most back pain, neck pain, MSK problems, can be self-managed perfectly well with patient, by patients if they're given the right support, the right explanations, given permission to like, it's okay, it's okay to go and exercise, it's okay to do the things you value. And so usually just, in a, in, you know, I'm not saying I'm some wizard, I can get people better in two or three sessions, but most patients, patients maybe aren't as, no, patients aren't as disabled or as we think they are actually we often yep. we look quite good at looking for disability and looking for reasons for people not to do things i'm always looking for, for reasons for people to do things you're looking for every opportunity for them to live a happy life and do the things that they care about so in short i still do manual therapy it's framed quite differently like it's if i'm you know if people are worried or concerned about moving in certain directions I'll kind of use the manual therapy bit as a kind of exposure type therapy just to get them to engage some of those 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 behaviors, which they're not so happy about. <laughs> uh, we talk about expectations. So it's all you can still, and the great thing is you can still do manual therapy. Like no one's taking manual therapy away, but the framework by which it's it's delivered is quite different. So if you watch me doing manual therapy in practice, it probably looks like manual therapy. There's nothing, you know, the, the, the techniques remain the same. But the kind of purpose, the framework, the language is all a bit different and the relationship's quite different too. Do you think it's important to re-educate patients if they do come in and they're saying things like, oh, I've got a big knot in my shoulder, I've um, my hips go out, um, you know, I need to be put back in alignment, those sorts mm. of things. Or, my, you know, I my think, spine is yeah. weak and unstable. Yeah. I think it, I think... It's a good question. And I think it, my, my kind of positions changed. I, I think early on, a bit like when you go on a, I don't know, taping course the next Monday, like everyone, you're taping everyone. I think when I moved into this space, I was like, oh, I've got to tell patients the truth. Like they need to know, they, you know they, they've got to know, they've got to know these things. And so invariably what I did was kind of jam these explanations down patients' throat and make them feel stupid and not unintentionally. Um, and these are, these are ways that they've come to understand their problems through decades potentially through family members other clinicians and so for me to suddenly just blast their beliefs out of the water so well, that's a ridiculous way to think about things that wasn't productive for anyone like they just think you're an idiot you don't know what you're talking about 
and they go find someone else. So I think I think the, the broad message is, yes, of course, it's important to address these biomedical beliefs. But I think in a very individualized way. So remember, patients haven't got to be thinking like you, you know, in a very biased psychosocial way for them to recover. You just need to change enough beliefs, if you like, that they, they, they can recover. So you haven't got to you know, go through a kind of search and destroy mission, every single belief that they hold and just target it. I think it's about being selective, thinking about, well, how strong is this belief? How long is it going to change? Is it going to, you know, how am I going to approach this? If I tackle it head on, is it just going to threaten or compromise the relationship, which is really important. And so I think, so I think I guess the key messages are over time, it's important and also not making patients feel silly. So some of the things that patients say clearly do sound silly to us as clinicians, but to point out their silliness doesn't help anyone. Not helpful. So I think delicately is not yeah. helpful. And look, I think, I think addressing the ones that create more um, treatment reliability, yeah. um, if they've been told by another practitioner in the past that, oh, your hips keep going out, so you need to come in once a month, for them to be realigned um i think i feel like those they would be the ones that um give them less faith in their body they're the ones that would probably need to be mm, challenged a little bit in a delicate way yeah and i think completely right i think the second group is that beliefs which seem to be holding back patients from doing stuff which they care about and that's the when i hear patients say i really like running i love running and they're running to the park but I've been told not to run, or yeah. I think running will dislodge my sacrum, or I'm not, I'm not doing this. I really love doing this, but I'm not doing it because of the belief. And it's not that they're not doing it because of the pain or because of the disability. Mm. They're mainly doing it because of the, the, the perceived um, consequence of doing it. Like, I think yeah. I'm worried that if I do, if I do this, this will happen. Yeah. So those beliefs, which are holding people back from doing those valued activities. Yep. I go, they're the ones I focus on. So we're going to kind of triage, which are the most, yeah. most important, so we'll say that, the least yeah. important, getting people to do stuff that they enjoy. I mean, life is so short, right? And if people aren't doing things that they, they value because they're worried about their kind of sacrum spinning or a disc prolapsing or something like that. So then the language and the communication and the conversation is very much around reassuring. I might, in terms of manual therapy, you might say, okay, well, manual therapy is a tool to move people into positions which they might be worried about in terms of their valued activity. So I can go through that yep. do some rotation, do some flexion. And you might, you might provide a kind of narrative around that technique. Oh, it's, you know, it's really feeling really strong. Actually. How does that feel? You might ask them, how do they feel when that, in that position? So the manual therapy, it really is, you know, touch-based therapy is really important and really helpful to, to begin to reframe this stuff. Yeah. In a and safe this, environment. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yep. And so, yeah, I guess, I guess maybe challenging beliefs that create fear and, and catastrophizing would be top yeah. of the triage list. And explore okay. them, explore it, ask yeah. them, you know, and say, oh, that's interesting that you think that, you know, why is that? Or where did that, how did you come to understand it that way? And they might tell you, yeah, oh, my grandma said that, you know, she had back pain and it was her. And I think you can understand how these beliefs develop or my last clinician, or yeah. that, that gives you a, a better sense and showing interest. And obviously, you know, like I said, 
and I've learned this, not dismissing beliefs or invalidating people's experience. So, you, you know, the minute we say, well, that's, you know, of course your you know, pelvis doesn't go out of place. What patients might hear is, you don't believe me, it's all in my head. You think I'm making it up. You don't really care about me. And then that's not, that's obviously not good. It bothers me when, when I think <clears throat> it, you know, potentially a previous practitioner has, has purposely created the reliability yeah. on treatment by saying things like, see, look, all these vertebrae, they're twisted this way, they're twisted that way. You need to come in for regular treatment um, to keep your spine straight. Yeah. They, they cause me quite a lot of bother. Um, yeah, they should. I mean, they're unethical. They're unethical. I mean, a few times in my career, and, you know, I, you're right, there are some clear-cut examples that I can remember when patients have come in to see me in a kind of second opinion, and they bring in this kind of, they've become like a folder, paperwork of some diagrams. They've had maybe some x-rays, but some it's just a kind of weird postural assessment with the green lines and the red lines on some square paper. And it's in like a little pack, and there's some pricing there with some, and and I see that that to me, that's a clear intention to deceive, which we should completely kind of rail against. I suppose I've softened over the years, and you know, there is some time we cause reliance or dependence unintentionally. So the nat, the kind of normal discourse that we have within osteopathy, which is largely around structure and how manual therapy, osteopathic technique can change structure and function of tissues that coupling of your, your structure or your function is compromised. This treatment has a kind of a direct cause in those structures and that function, even just, even we don't mention reliability, uh, reliance or really we're clearly not trying to engender that dependency. It's an inadvertent consequence of what we say, because we build this, this framework with patients that they're a bit broken, the, the system's breaking down you're the one that's got the skill and the knowledge to kind of go in there and fiddle with stuff. And I think, so I think, you know, sometimes we do it inadvertently just through our language and not know, not know about yeah. it. Yeah. And it creates more problems for us down the track because it, it puts the, the responsibility for the patient solely on us yeah. as well. They yeah. come back and go, well, you didn't fix me. And it's no, it's a team effort. Yeah. Exactly. I would love to know, do you still believe in or, or use the osteopathic, the traditional osteopathic diagnosis, you know, somatic dysfunction? Um, do you diagnose sacral torsions, um, ERS, FRS, phenomena rotations, all those sorts of things? I don't. I, I, and I don't. I don't because... I don't because there's no evidence for them for any of that stuff. So I mean, I, you know, osteopathic dysfunction has been reasonably well researched by you know, Gary Fryer in Australia, but also others. And whether it's the kind of physiotherapy segmental dysfunction or the chiropractic subluxation, they're all the same illusion, right? Yeah. All the people, all the clinicians are kind of imagining to, to experience or, or feel this thing. So, so no, they're not. They're, I don't use any of that stuff, sacral torsion, any of that stuff, because it's both untrue. It's kind of, i.e., the studies which are done, and there's a fair bit of research now, particularly looking at the, the sacral neck joint and sticking kind of radio opaque markers in and looking at manipulation. You know, like it doesn't move, it moves like one millimeter or two millimeters or whatever it is. All that stuff. There's no reason to think that these things can be either, that these things either happen, there are kind of rotated sacrums out there, or that practitioners can assess them reliably. 
thirdly, that treatment can change the position. Like, so there's three hoops that this argument has to jump, none of which they fail at each one. I suppose the fourth hoop is if we were going to articulate or explain patients' back pain to, in very in biomedical terms, sacred joint twisting, somatic dysfunction is quite a biomedical concept. It's really focused on what is it? What's the acronym? TART and PRAT? TART, yeah. Yeah, yeah TART. And I think it added pain, didn't they? So it became PRAT. Which is oh, I, did, I didn't get that memo. Pain, yep. pain restriction, asymmetry. Uh, tissue texture tissue changes. Texture change. But they're really all about, you know, what that acronym points to is like stuff is wrong in your back. Yep. There's no psychosocial component. So again, all these things, I don't use any of them because they're not helpful. They're not ethical they don't really exist and there are better ways and the main key thing is there are better ways to to both kind of you know theories or frameworks to guide our assessment and to guide our conversation with patients so no okay i don't know if you'll be able to answer this or not so so for example i had someone present and they had um you know three-day history of pain around their left sacroiliac joint and i've done my examination and i think they have a sacral torsion so my diagnosis is going to be, you know, mechanical left SIJ pain, um, sacral torsion, background of trauma. Could you give me an alternate sort of diagnosis? Like how, how I know it might, I don't know if you can or not, but, but what would yeah, you write I down? Can like, I, yeah, I can try. I, mean, I guess I, I start to unpick a, the, the, the first diagnosis, so sacral torsion, it presumes that there's some movement of the sacrum, as I said, which is which you can confidently say has occurred, and not only has occurred, but is responsible for the person's discomfort. And like I said, we know the evidence says you the evidence says you cannot reliably palpate that, and B, it doesn't actually happen. So 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 it's once you take that position, it's very hard to actually write those words on a paper because it's a bit like writing talking about the tooth fairy. It doesn't really exist, right? So, so, so I think that the first thing is it doesn't uh, that stuff doesn't make too much sense to anyone. But coming back to your question, how would I describe this thing? Well, yeah. it, I would be more interested, or perhaps interested in, okay, this person's got pain in that area. We've called it the sacroiliac joint, but let's just call it that the, you know the kind of lower back for argument's sake. There's, if there's a history of trauma, then that's kind of important. It depends on how, how recent the trauma is. But if it's more than whatever, I don't know, 10 weeks, then I'm presuming that some of those tissues have healed now. So like, why are they still in pain? I'm interested in the kind of story behind that. I'm interested in the beliefs which, un, which might underpin some of the behaviours. I'm interested in some of the social factors, you know, lifestyle factors, bereavement, divorce and these other slightly uncomfortable topics which we're like oh that's a bit of an awkward conversation but are certainly part of that person and their pain experience so so i can't i mean i I suppose i would end up writing something like non-specific low back pain if i was confident that's what it it fell into that diagnostic basket but i'm interested in the stuff around it both the biological stuff i.e they got kicked in the back or fell on their bum or whatever it is there's some kind of physical trauma there but also I'd, I'd write some short narrative and I say short, a few sentences about some of the, the other social psychological factors around that. But the non-split back pain meets, at least in the UK, the medical lever requirement. I mean, that's as accurate as we can be with this kind of presentation. 
Yep. So going the extra mile with the sacred torsion and whatever it is, like that doesn't that doesn't make it any more legal. It just makes it yep. nonsensical. Okay. Good answer. Kind of. I wondered then, like I was filling in the other day a um a certificate of capacity for a work cover patient, you know, and they ask for your diagnosis, they ask for you know your prognosis, your time frame, when can they go back to work? Yeah. And I think in this circumstance, you know, you're expected to give, you know, oh, this person, uh, a disc pathology showed up on a on some imaging. So the natural history for that, let's say six to eight weeks. It's like, well, how can you then put in, oh, well, that can that's probably going to be determined by, you know, when when her divorce goes through and then, you know, when when she can heal from the trauma of her mother's death and when she starts getting good sleep. And so in some respects, I think that would be really ch- challenging to approach things from that, yeah. you know, yeah. From, yeah. you know what I mean? Like a less biomedical or, or pathoanatomic um, perspective. Yeah. I think you're right. I mean, the system won't necessarily be set up in all corners yeah. to provide these more kind of um, narrative base, like social base diagnostic explanations. But again, I don't know what the requirement for that form is. I'm, I would be surprised if within that form is is there's built-in anatomical like requirements. I would imagine something like non-severe low back pain or episodic low back pain or radicular pain or something which is which is somewhat is somewhat specific in terms of you know non-severe low back pain is different to knee pain. So some kind of narrowing, if you like, of, of the mm. diagnostic criteria there. But alluding to tissues and stuff, there isn't. I don't think that I don't know the form, but I can't see how that. Yeah, no, no. There's nothing. There's nothing about tissue findings. It's more just okay. you know the prognosis and the natural history. There's yeah. there's sort of there's no taking into account of the other factors other than just what is the textbook natural healing time. Yeah. So I guess yes, the system. I think I think what you could so. do. I mean, if, if 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 on consultation they were you know was being with that person. And you you you'd begin to identify reasons or factors which might not, which might inhibit their recovery in the in the in the, in the predicted natural course of resolutions, whatever it's six to twelve weeks. There may be other factors. So I mean, you might write again. You know, you might write that this is whatever back you know non-fit with back pain or ridiculous pain. Again, I don't know the form, but there may be space for you to allude to some of the factors which might be which might be potential obstacles or barriers or preventing kind of immediate or, or kind of um, hastily recovery. So, so it's challenging. I mean, you're right, this, but the system isn't necessarily set up to yeah. have these kind of more individualized diagnoses. Okay. For practitioners that are interested in exploring all of this more, where would you point them to? Apart from my podcast? No. Yeah. Um, I, of course, my podcast, I would say that. Well, I? it's but, um, no, but it is actually fantastic. And my favorite episode for everyone is just no, is number one. I think you hit it out the park with the yeah. first one, the SIJ one. Um, yeah, thank you. That's my personal favorite. Thanks. Yeah, there was a few. Um, that was with uh, Valdi Palsen, who's a Icelandic slash Danish physiotherapy researcher who's done lots of work on uh, kind of narratives around sacred net joint dysfunction. They're totally relevant to osteopaths. Like, oh, you know, kind of- it's um, yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty mild. Wow. It, it, yeah. It's challenging. I loved it. 
I think I think there's lots of good podcasts out there, and which are, and I think you know, busy clinicians, it's hard to access some of the stuff to make it digestible and to relevant. So I think podcasts are a great way to start, and then often podcasts, are, at least in my podcast, there are show notes and referenced articles so you can go and read a bit further. I think having some, you know, it, it's quite hard to you can learn this stuff and you can engage in it, but having some kind of mentor or someone, a senior clinician but not senior in so much as they've just been in practice 30 years, because that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be any more psychosocially orientated than anyone else. But finding a mentor, someone that's been through this, has experience and kind of framing some of this stuff and has had to overcome some of these professional challenges, that can be really helpful too. Um, so I mentor uh, some, some, actually some Aussies, some Brits, and people kind of around, around the world. Sounds grand, doesn't it? But clinicians are kind of going through some of this process and some of the change and I support them so finding someone who can who can help have these discussions a bit like we're having now and some of the questions you're asking me because I'm just learning it or reading it it does it can be challenging to translate it to your own clinical reality so having some support system there can be really helpful fantastic well thank you so much for your time today um it's been a really enjoyable chat and I hope everyone um yeah, finds all this as sort of thought provoking as I have. So thank you very much, Oliver. Cool. Thanks, Emily. The content discussed in each episode is the opinion of the participants only and should not be used as medical advice.